Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. A few years ago, we did a story over at 1001 Heroes called I Will Fight No More Forever, documenting the Nez Perce War, one of the last Indian wars in the U.S., and one which should never have taken place, for the Nez Perce were a peaceful tribe. They were acclimating well to European culture, and they were thriving well on the land they had known for centuries, which reached into Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. They had a huge knowledge of and respect for their horses, using selective breeding and becoming known for creating the Appaloosa breed. But, as with so many of the American Indian tribes, European expansion, the relentless surge of European immigrants seeking land of their own to farm and develop, threatened their existence, and they were gradually penned into smaller and smaller areas, then limited to reservations, which they were gradually cheated out of until they were forced to fight or live like dogs and they chose to fight. I would send you to that story, but that story is on my repair and redo list, and I need to get back to it one day soon. I will say this much for the Nez Perce. They had intelligent leadership and knew that savagery wasn't going to get them anywhere, so they generally didn't attack innocent settlers, and they weren't known for brutality, as were tribes like the Sioux and the Apache. Like most Indians, the Nez Perce were fighters, and once pushed to war, they fought well, and they were excellent horsemen. The story I'm sharing today is called Yellow Wolf, His Own Story. He was a Nez Perce who lived and fought in the Nez Perce War, and I thought it important to share his side of that war with you listeners. If you enjoy this story through the coming weeks, be sure to let us know. The strange thing that happened here was that as I entered my office this morning, this story was waiting for me on Internet Archive, which is really strange because I don't use that site for text, just audio, and I hadn't been on it for weeks. This morning, my first job was to find a story for 1001 Stories for the Old West, and here it was staring me in the face. Very strange. But when you delve into the past often, strange things can happen. Someday I'll share some of those incidents. For now, enjoy Yellow Wolf, his own story, Chapter 1. I have a hunch he wanted me to tell it here. And now, Yellow Wolf, his own story, Part 1. Introduction In the mellow glow of an October sunset in the year 1907, a strange Indian of strikingly strong physique rode into the lane leading from the highway to the author's residence, driving before him a saddle horse limping from a severe wire cut. After a formal greeting, he pointed to the ragged wound and, in a soft, modulated tone of broken English, asked inquiringly, "'Sick. Hoss stay here?' Receiving an affirmative response, the Indian turned and rode away, revealing neither name nor tribal affiliation. It was ten months later that he appeared with four other tribesmen and asked for his horse. I released it in accordance with tribal ethics, free of charge. Such was my introduction to Hot Hinhith, White Thunder or White Lightning, better known as Hemini Huxmox, Yellow Wolf, Nez Perce Warrior of 1877. It was the beginning of a friendship which proved inductive of this volume. With his wife, 
Small's son, and other members of the Chief Joseph Band of Exiles. He was at this time on the annual trek to the Yakima Valley hop fields. At the close of hop picking of this second year, 1908, the band encamped on the riverbank at my place for several days. It was during this time that I obtained the first portions of Yellow Wolf's war narrative, which were added to annually for the ensuing 24 years, or until the aging warrior was no longer physically able to appear at the hopyards. His last contribution was in May 1935 at his home on the Colville Indian Reservation, Washington, at which time he contributed many more details to the narrative. If Yellow Wolf was resentful of ill treatment, he was equally reciprocal to kindness and just dealing. It was in the evening gloaming preceding the breaking of the Nez Perce camp at my place in October of 1909 that, standing on the riverbank, he spoke through interpreter Whitman. This is the last night I will be with you, and I would like you to understand. I have been here with you for a few suns. I am glad we get along so well. It's the way I have been with everybody who treats me right. Hike, good people. I will never forget you and your family. I will remember while I live. How is your heart? What do you think about it? On that occasion, in accordance with tribal rights, I named Yellow Wolf to take the place of a brother of earlier years, thus sealing a sacred friendship for all time. At the time that I first became acquainted with Yellow Wolf, which was October of 1908, he stood five feet, ten and a half inches in his moccasins, and his weight was 187 pounds. Well built, he had been very athletic, and was quick and accurate in movement. Tragedy was written in every liniment of his face. His laughter was infrequent, and was never more than a soft, scarcely audible chuckle. As his land allotment was not provided with irrigation, his rifle and fish spear were long, the principal means of supplying the home larder with meat, until old age and failing vitality precluded such activity. It is gratifying to know that under the later regime of the Indian Department, the old warrior was the recipient of marked aid during his declining years. Of his war record, Yellow Wolf was justly proud. His war name, as he explains in Chapter 1, was Hindmott Hibbeth White Thunder, or White Lightning. As a combatant, he could boast possession not only of the irresistible force of thunder, but also of the adroit circumspection and fierce fighting qualities of the timber wolf. As the wolf was the greatest hunter among all wilderness denizens, so Yellow Wolf excelled as a hunter. As the wolf is unsurpassed in the sense of smell, so Yellow Wolf, like the famed Deaf Smith of Texas and the renowned Jesse Hughes of the Monongahela border, could detect the presence of an enemy at a considerable distance by the olfactory sense alone. As the wolf is the only forest dweller of which the mighty grizzly bear stands in dread, so Yellow Wolf reveled in combating the grizzly. Yellow Wolf in his younger days was renowned for his wonderful horsemanship. Even when past middle age, he once tamed a vicious range horse of man-killing propensities after corralling and roping this animal, and meeting with no success at friendly overtures, Yellow Wolf sprang to its back, where he stuck and hung until it was brought into submission. If the enraged animal resorted to rolling in order to dislodge its tormentor, it regained its feet only to find Yellow Wolf again on its back, and all the time the Indian had no hold but a rope looped about the animal's head. Yellow Wolf later received a lasting injury when a fractious horse, rearing, fell backwards, and the rider failed to get clear. The impact was on his right breast, which was ever afterwards sick, as he termed it. The injury caused a slight droop to his shoulders. 
To obviate a possible misconception because of a name, it is well to mention that the following item which appeared in the Yakima Press in September 1910 does not refer to the Yellow Wolf of War fame. Yellow Wolf, an Indian arrested here by Deputy Monroe of, Lewis, of Lewiston, Idaho, was returned to Lewiston to face a charge of murder. Yellow Wolf was described by Monroe as a horse thief, gambler, and bad character. At the time of the arrest, the Yellow Wolf that you're going to hear here, and his wife, and their small son, were all picking hops in the Yakima field, and at the end of the season camped for a few days at the writer's place, adding to his narrative, as was our wont each year. He returned to his home the latter part of October. The man arrested was also known among his tribesmen as Wolf Shirt On. In the winter of 1916-17, Yellow Wolf headed a tribal petition praying for state legislative protection from the blighting inroads of the bootleggers. This Macedonian cry was read at a morning session of the state senate, preliminary to its being referred to the Committee of Public Morals, never to be further heard from. Of a sensitive nature, Yellow Wolf felt his isolation keenly during his latter years, when the last of his warmates was gone. The younger generation held no particular interest in the lonely old hero of the lost cause. But there was an occasional cheery flash athwart his gloomy horizon, and such was his meeting with the late Major General Hugh Lennox Scott, of which he never tired of speaking. Major General Scott was at the Colville Indian Agency in the earlier twenties, and hearing of Yellow Wolf as a warrior, had the superintendent send for him. There was no interpreter, the conversation being wholly in the Indian Sign Language, at which they both excelled. Of their meeting, Yellow Wolf related the following. We met. General Scott threw me the words, I come from a way off. I am glad to meet you. We will talk a few words before I ask you about some very important business. I answered him. All right, we will talk. You came a long distance. My heart and your heart are like shaking hands. You ever been in war? You see, I am nearly old man. How old are you? Come near seventy. Over sixty. We'll be seventy very soon. You remember the war? Yes. I'm glad you tell me you were in war. Tell me why you people travel rough lands through timber. Yes, I know all about this mountain traveling. That was decided by the chiefs. They decided for this purpose. If they went over rough mountains, the big cannon could not follow. It was the safest way. So that was why General Howard failed to overtake you? Yes. Then General Scott spoke to the agent in English. Are there other warriors around here in Nespelum? The agent pointed to Red Star, Willie Andrews, and answered, Ask him. He is chief and knows. I had never reported to the agent that I was higher referring to his warrior record, then Red Star. The general and agent talked. He asked the agent if Andrews fought in war, and was told no. The general then said, I won't make conversation with him. Only one I talk to is warrior, when I have a chance. I do not care for others not in the fight. This was the first time the agent looked at me. From that moment he respected me. General Scott now threw me the words, It is nearly noon. We will eat dinner together, because you are alive, and I am alive. If I had been in the fight where you were fighting, I think you would have killed me with your war club, and not the gun. As a result of that war was bloody water, bloody eating. It was like drinking blood. Bloody hands, suffering. For that reason we are going to eat together. In fact, we are good friends. I realize we are friends. 
"'General Scott and I were of same mind, same feeling,' says Yellow Wolf here. "'I answered, "'I'm glad to hear you speak of eating dinner. "'That food gives us strength in life, "'gives strength that hostile feelings are past. "'We are like brothers. "'If I had got to the surrender in lead, "'I could have done something for you. "'I was not there. "'That was General Scott's last word of the war. "'That was all we talked about, the war. "'We parted, and I never saw him again.' During one of our interviews in 1931, Yellow Wolf made the following remarks, which may be taken as a just summary of his feelings about the long-suppressed truths of that Nez Perce war. The story I gave you long ago, if people do not like it, I would tell it anyway. I am not strong, and I do not expect to be better any time. I would like finishing it as truth, not as a lie. We have worked together a long time. You've always helped me from first time we met. I am aging where I cannot do much more. White people, aided by government, are smothering my Indian rights. The young generation behind me, for them I tell the story. It is for them. I want the next generation of whites to know and treat the Indian as themselves. We came from no country, as have the whites. We were always here. Nature placed us in this land of ours, land that has been taken from us. I am telling my story that all may know why the war we did not want. War is made to take something, not your own. Yellow Wolf, patriot of a lost cause, died at his home on the Colville Indian Reservation, August 21, 1935, aged 79 years. His son, Homas, inherited name of his maternal grandsire, cared for his father during his last illness. Of the closing scene, this son, who is better known as Billy, gave the following brief depiction. My father grew very weak and thin, not weighing over 65 pounds. I could easily carry him about. The evening before his death, he said to me, when the sun pauses on the horizon's edge, it is then that I will leave you and all others. You, my only son, and my daughter's gone, were only loaned to me, loaned by God. You are my brother. They, my sister. I will go with the new son." Next morning, just as the sun rested on the edge of the horizon, although he could not see it, he said to all of us, I am now going. My old friends have come for me. They are here. Do you not see them? There stands Eswawas, Crow Blanket, and there Propio Hawistowit, Curlew, and Discojo, Sun Faded. They have come to take me to Akunkinaku, land above, the happy hereafter. Those were my father's last words. Yellow Wolf was buried at Nespalum, Washington. His grave is near that of his renowned chief and leader, Joseph Heinmott Duyalectic, thunder traveling to loftier mountain heights, whom he loved so well. It seems ironical that these two, and others of their comrade warriors, votaries of an ancestral dreamer faith, never understood by the whites, should sleep in the very shadows of a Christian church, beneath the echoes of its chiming bell, when it was to the institutional tenets of the religion that they attributed their downfall through the bogus treaty of 1863. The multiplicity of names borne by certain warriors proved most confusing in hearing Yellow Wolf's narrative, as in the capture of the Howitzer at the Battle of the Big Hole, and in the leadership of the night raid on General Howard's night camp at, at Camas Meadows, and the seizing of Lieutenant Jerome at the last battle, Practically every warrior was known by two names, and many by half a dozen, although some of them were 
pet, or fun nicknames. Names were sometimes pronounced variantly by different interpreters. For instance, Sipalius, Espalius, and Poius all allude to one person, and all are interpreted as light in the mountain. Therefore, throughout Yellow Wolf's narrative, all Indians will be designated by the names by which they were known during the war, so far as can be ascertained. Their surplus names will be found with definitions, when known, in the glossary at the end of this volume. Painstaking care was taken to obtain these, at times, intricate definitions, in spite of the disconcerting diversity of interpreters. In the midst of one such ordeal, Interpreter Hart explained, "'There is a lot in our language that bothers me, the same as in yours. When Yellow Wolf was ready to pull out from camp at your place the other day, he said that you had told him you wanted his story. He did not know how he could do this, since he speaks only a few English words. He tried one boy for interpreter, who told him to find somebody who better understands. Yellow Wolf learned where I was, and came to me, and said, I need you. I answered him, and he said to me again, I'm going to say things, and I need you. Yes, I will come with you, I told him. I will tell of my war story, of facts that I have seen, he said. Any hard words I cannot pronounce in our language? I answered him, I will make them the nearest that I can. When the Chief Joseph Memorial Association pr proposed a colossus to the memory of the Nez Perce Patriots, one of the lawyer faction again remonstrated. If you want to honor anybody, why don't you put up a monument of that kind for my grandfather, Chief Lawyer? He did more for this country and for the white man than any other Indian. It is scarcely strange that whites were found equally bitter and displaying about the same degree of logic, but it is doubly strange that this brand of invidious opposition should rear its baleful visage amidst the younger members of the fast-diminishing Chief Joseph Band itself. One of them, whose paternal grandparents were both killed in the big hole shambles, openly declared to the writer, Yellow Wolf has made a blame fool of himself working with you. There will be a history written of that war, and it will be done right. The Indian boys will do it themselves. None of the Indian boys has it yet come forward with a study of the causes and course of the Nez Perce conflict. In the meantime, it has been my high privilege to be the instrument for recording and bringing to publication the verified and corroborated narrative of Yellow Wolf as set forth in the following chapters. Special note on the word Nez Perce. Throughout this volume, except in quoting written authorities, the absurdly useless accent on the final E of Perce, as still used by most writers, and is still given in Webster's New International Dictionary, will be omitted. This tribe of Indians called themselves Nez Perses, singular, Nez Perse, and have so pronounced it, not Ne Perse or Nez Perse. This tribe was originally given its French appellation by the French trappers who came with the Hudson's Bay Company brigades in the decades from 1810 to 1850, but even during this early period, the French pronunciation of the tribal name was corrupted in usage among the equally omnipresent British and American fur traders. There is therefore not the slightest reason for retaining a totally obsolete accent mark and a misleading spelling in this word. In 30 years' experience, I've never heard the Indians call themselves Nez Perce. In Idaho, there is a county named Nez Perce, also a town named Nez Perce, written as one word. Both are locally pronounced in the American fashion to rhyme with verse. It's an interesting fact that the U.S. Geographic Board, the final arbiter in all geographical spellings, approves this usage and ignores the accent mark. It is to be hoped 
that our leading dictionaries will eventually adopt this common-sense decision in regard to the name of that tribe which occupies so important a place in our Western history. We'll return with Yellow Wolf, his own story, Chapter 1, right after these sponsor messages. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. And now Chapter 1, Youth of the Warrior. Hoping to incorporate something of Yellow Wolf's earlier life as a prelude to his war career, I broached the subject to him at our last interview at his home in May of 1935. The effort was futile. His native pride and modesty proved aversive to the measure. "'I am now getting old,' he protested. "'It is not right for me to tell of my own growing-up life. That does not belong to history. Would not look well in this history we are writing.' I do not want to hurt, to spoil what I did in the war. Only that should go in any, only that, only that should go in my story of the war. The other would not be well placed. Insistence was not to be thought of. It was only by an assemblage of items gleaned from our previous interviews, covering more than a quarter of a century, that the meager glimpse of his early career as set forth in this chapter could be constructed. I was born in the Wallowa Valley, Oregon. I longed the home of the Nez Perce. Our name for that river is Kamuanem, named for a trailing vine growing at places along its banks and sands. This is where I grew up. My father, Simkusis Kunin, horse blanket, was rich in horses and cattle. A true horseman himself, he raised me among horses. He lived part of the time east of Lapuai, Idaho, but mostly in the Wallowa Valley. I was with my father until well-grown, hunting, and sporting of all kinds known to Indians. He would go to Wallowa in spring for salmon, stay there all summer and until late fall. Plenty of game. It was easy to get our winter's food, he said. We often wintered in the Imnaha Valley, and most Indians wintered there always. The Imnaha was warmer than the Wallowa. I was told that in early days my father was in battle near Walla Walla, fighting for the soldiers, with another man whose wife was with him. They were chased for their lives by Chief Kamiakan's warriors. They saw and fled to a bunch of soldiers who received them kindly. The two joined the soldiers in a fight against the enemies. Kamiakun's warriors rode swift circles about the camp, shooting arrows and bullets from horseback, but they were stood off and night drew on. In the darkness, my father and companion guided the soldiers out from there. All escaped. It may have been other Indians than those of Chief Kamiakun, the Yakima. I do not know. My name as a boy cannot be translated. Too deep. You cannot write it down. One inherited name was Ini Chikustin, my mother Yiyik Wasumawa, Swan Woman, Swans Lighting on Water, was a sister, first cousin, to Chief Joseph. It was this way. The mother of old Chief Joseph and my grandfather on my mother's side were full brother and sister. That is why I belong to young Joseph's band. Joseph's people held strong to blood kinship. My great-grandfather was Silu Wahyakt, I Necklace, was a great war chief. He was killed in battle with the Pocatellas, fighting for possession of Wallowa Valley. He became separated from his band and outnumbered. His arrows exhausted, he was captured. His arms and legs were cut off before he was killed. 
My grandfather, maternal, Homas, son of Silu Wayakt, died on a buffalo hunt in Yellowstone Park. I am not mistaken. It was at Sokolanim, Antelope, where he was buried. This is north of some hot springs, not over or beyond any big mountain, but is above where two rivers meet. Names of larger river, Paniakus, tongue water. A smaller river above, Waiukiakus, elk water. There were Indians living around there somewhere. We hunted there, for the Sioux, Assiniboine, attacked us if we went on south side of the big mountain. We knew that park country, no difference what white people say. And when retreating from soldiers, we went up the river and crossed where there are two big rocks. The trail there is called Pitu Kisnit, meaning narrow solid rock pass. This is on south side of Paniakus. We did not enter the park by our old trail, when on war retreat. I grew up among warriors, and since old enough to take notice, I made defending myself a study. The whites call me Yellow Wolf, but I take that as a nickname. My true name is different, and is after the spirit which gave me promise of its power as a warrior. I am Heinmat Haihe, which means White Thunder. Yellow Wolf is not my own chosen name. Upon being asked how he came by the designation of Yellow Wolf, he discoursed earnestly for some moments with interpreter Hart, and then gave this explanation. I was a boy of about thirteen snows when my parents sent me away into the hills. It was to find my Wayakan. I saw something not on the ground, but about four feet up in the air. I took ray bow and shot an arrow. It was in moon you call May when my parents again sent me out. This time it was to the wildest part of the mountains, to a place beyond Kimikuis. Gave me one blanket, but no food. I might go fifteen, maybe twenty suns with nothing to eat, but could drink water aplenty. Only trees for shelter and fur brush to sleep on. I might stay in one place three nights, maybe five nights, then go somewhere else. Nobody around, just myself. No weapons, for nothing would hurt me. No children ever get hurt when out on such business. After going so many suns without food, I was sleeping. It was just like dreaming, what I saw. A form stood in the air fronting me. It talked to me in plain language, telling me, My boy, look at me. You do as I am telling you, and you will be as I am. Take a good look at me. I will give you my power, what I have got. You may think I am nothing. You may think I am only bones, but I am alive. You can see me. I am talking to you. I am Hemini Moxmox, Yellow Wolf. It was the spirit of a wolf that appeared to me. Yellow-like in color, it sort of floated in the air, like a human being had talked to me, and gave me its power. I did not say anything back to the spirit talking to me. I was asleep in a trance. I am not scared. It was just as I am now. Nothing was there to hurt me. After I saw this wolf thing, after I heard the spirit voice, I awoke and started for home. When near to maybe quarter of a mile of home, I dropped down, supposed dead. Someone, man or woman, came and brought me to the teepee. They had seen me, had watched for me. It was good for the one finding me. That was how I got named Yellow Wolf, named for that vision, wolf appearing to me. It was yellow-colored and gave me the power of the wolf. The name of thunder is to kill as it strikes and rolls along. My Copeland's war club I made when a boy, by directions of the spirit that gave me the promise of warrior power, it has the same killing strength as thunder. I have had different spirit guidance. I was not full grown when we were hunting, 
moving into Montana, near the falls to the river. It was dark night and freezing cold. The chiefs told me to watch the horses. So cold. I did not know all the time what I was doing. Horseback. I was doubled over, eyes closed. I went sound asleep. Did not know anything. I must have been near death. I felt something lightly touch and shake my thigh. I felt it about three times. Then I heard a voice speaking. What are you doing? Wake up. You are dead. Go home. I awoke, numb with cold. I could see no one, but the way that spirit directed, I drove the horses. I moved them the direction that the spirit guided. I was afraid enemy Indians would take the herd. I was scared. About two miles I must have gone when I heard a voice calling. Where are you going? Come this way. I woke again, came to myself. I turned that way where my people were calling. I was freezing. A wild northeast wind was blowing, coldest of all winds. It kills quickly. I would have died had not that spirit guided me where I could hear my people calling. They heard the horses passing. Always after that night I could smell an enemy anywhere for a long distance away. This spirit at that time gave me such power. I could then tell if enemies were around watching to take our horses or attack our camp. This spirit told me never to be mean, never hurt a dog without cause, to do nothing violent, only as had to be done. When in war, this spirit wanted me to be alone. For this reason I did scout mostly alone on a retreat. Sometimes I never ate for three or four days, only drank water. Water is medicine for everything. What I'm giving you is free from my heart. I could have been dead many times. Only for the spirit protection. For all this I am thankful, happy for it all. Another way I feel now. All my people are dead. I am alone. My heart is heavy because of the way I am treated by whites. In early days, my parents were to the whites as brothers. Why should I be badly treated by whites? Why is it they do not want to pay me for my land? They robbed us of all our country, our homes. We got nothing but bullets. I am old now. I feel worried about my grandchildren. What may become of them? It cannot be for them as with me, when growing up hunting buffaloes. In Montana, my uncle traded a yearling horse to some miners for a magazine rifle. It was like the one I carried through the war. An 1866 Winchester repeater. With it I hunted buffaloes until somebody stole it. I killed yearlings mostly. It was robes we were after, more than meat. You had to be a good horseman when running buffaloes. Sometimes they chased you, horned your horse. If a man was thrown to the ground, best that he lies still. The buffalo would then lick his face raw, but he could thereby escape. At times the Nez Perses hunted goats, bighorns, deer, and elk. All kinds of game. In that country, we knew that country well before passing through there in 1877. The hot smoking springs and the high shooting water were nothing new to us. Once I returned from hunting in the Yellowstone country to Idaho, from there I went to Wallowa by stage. One snow from that time, war broke out. My age was then twenty-one snows. A strong young man, I was never sickly. One time I was out hunting with other Indians. We separated. Snow was about ankle deep. I came onto a bear's trail and tracked him to his home in a rock cliff. I jumped off my horse, went to the door and looked in. I saw two eyes just like fire. If you see animal eyes in darkness, they always shine as coals of fire. I leveled my gun and fired, aiming at the center between those eyes. 
I stood in the doorway listening. I heard him knocking against the walls of his house. Soon the knock stopped. Then I knew the bear was dead. I got the lariat from my saddle and crawled in where the bear lay. I slipped the loop over his head, drawing it tight. Then I backed out and tried to pull him from his house. Only got him part way. I brought my horse, and fastening the rope to saddle horn, I soon had that bear outside. I now went to the top of a ridge and gave the signal yell. The other hunters not too far away understood. They came and helped skin and got the meat to camp. I always had good luck hunting bears. One other time I met a bear at his home. There were three of us on horseback. I dismounted and went to the opening in the rocks. I peeked in. Yes, that bear was there, all right. I called into the bear, come out, I want you. My partners were afraid and stayed off a distance. I told them to come closer, but they would not mind me at all. One was afraid the bear might get hold of him. He stayed on his horse about thirty steps away. The other man was maybe forty steps from the bear's ground lodge. He dismounted and stood behind a big pine tree. His name was Jesse. I told them again to come closer, but they said no. Those two Indians were scared at nothing. I now put my head in the bear's doorway and told him, I want you. I've come for you. You must come out. But that bear would not come. He only growled and talked to himself. I now yelled a sharp command and struck him with a stone. That bear made a bad noise with his mouth and started out. I took three steps back. That bear came out of his doorway, mad. Just as he made to jump, I shot him through the head. I now called to my partners, come over. They said no. Told me to examine to see if the bear was dead. I laughed at them. I put my rifle down and gripped the bear's head. They now said, we were afraid to come close. We thought that bear might put up a bad fight. They laughed, seeing the bear dead. I told them, the bear is nothing to me. He is just like a dog to me. I can kill him with a club. I was hunting deer in the mountains. I was alone. I heard a voice coming from the east, from some place among the big rocks. I thought it was a true voice of a person. I listened good. Yes, it was there all right. I ran and came near where the voice had sounded. No human voice whatever. Only the voice of Itsy-Yee, Coyote. That Itsy-Yee was crying. Quit that. Quit that. A bear was trying to catch that Itsy-Yee and I thought to shoot him. I shot just as he reared up, and the bullet struck his right paw. I ran to get closer to that bear, but he saw and came at me. Getting close, I shot him in the head. After killing that bear, I discovered a dead deer, a fresh-killed deer. That bear had been fighting Itsy-Yee from eating the deer. It is a strange story I am now telling you. I had hunted two sons and seen nothing. In camp all morning, I went out in the afternoon. There was a good snow. I found no tracks. I wondered what was wrong. I have never felt as I did at that time. I sat down to think. Sun shining, nice day. The way I was looking, I saw a deer about fifty steps away. It was reaching up, eating the long moss from the lower limbs of a tree. It was the kind of moss we cook in the ground ovens for food. The same kind you liked at our camp dinner. Yes, it was a deer standing broadside to me. I raised my rifle and fired. The deer continued to eat the hanging moss. I thought, what is wrong? I fired again, aiming good. Still that deer did not move, but just kept eating moss. I did not hurry as I fired a third time. The deer remained in the same place, still filling up on moss. Paid no attention to what was being done to it. I thought, maybe gunsight not good? 
I put my eye to rifle sight and back again quickly. The deer was gone. My rifle sight was nothing wrong. I went over where that deer had stood. No tracks whatever. I looked up. A long lodge pole couldn't reach that moss. That's how high it was above the ground. I must have been shooting Adamus. Dead deer. A spirit deer. Maybe from out of the ground. I never saw such any other time. I thought about it for many long snows. I have never forgotten it. I returned to camp, hunting no more that sun. Join us in two weeks for Chapter 2 of Yellow Wolf, His Own Story. This is 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you're enjoying our stories, please do take a moment, especially you Apple listeners, and send us a review. Reviews help new listeners find us. We'll be, we'll be back in two weeks with Chapter 2. See you then.